0: You're listening to the Fade to Gray Network. Nothing's going your way, you've had a
1: bad day. You need to keep it simple. Just chat with Seth and take a deep breath. He's not just gay, he's mental.
2: I am so honored to have Carl Forhan, a pastor from my youth, and his friend Dr. Paul Fitzgerald on today to talk about internalized shame. As a mental health professional myself, I struggle with internalized shame and I work with people every day who are dealing with difficult life situations um, surrounded by shame. And so I'm really hoping that today's conversation um, will allow us to unpack shame in a way that is understandable and maybe we can look at some ways and some paths forward. So to get started, um, can you tell me a little bit about your credentials, Dr. Paul?
3: Thank you. It's a good pleasure to be here. Um, I have an um, undergraduate degree in Biblical uh, Literature and Philosophy from Olivet Nazarene University, with a Master's in Divinity from the uh, uh, Nazarene Seminary in Kansas City, uh, and then a doctorate Ministry from Asbury Theological Seminary in uh, Wilmore, Kentucky.
2: Oh, wow. So you're very well educated. How long have you been in the field?
3: I have been in the field. Let's say I'm 72 years old, so I, that gives you a little bit of perspective. What field? I, I have been in uh, various forms of ministry. I spent uh, uh, 16 years in denominational administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was the assistant director of a of the World Mission Program for the Church of the Nazarene. Wow. Uh, and I was assistant uh, director for the uh, Pensions and Benefits Program for the Church of the Nazarene.
1: Mm-hmm
3: and um had a chartered life underwriter and a chartered financial credential creden- financial credential and all that and then i had a crash and burn and um that led me into a different walk of life
2: i see i well i want to talk about that okay i most definitely i want to talk about how things have changed so it it sounds like especially if you're mentioning nazarene uh, my parents grew up they were nazarene and that's a very mm-hmm. If I understand correctly, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's a very conservative, strict biblical adherence.
3: Yes, yeah, it's a it's a very it's adherence to it, it biblical. Will not call themselves fundamentalists, but it's uh, a lot of people who aren't fundamentalists. We call them fundamentalists. A, mm-hmm. a very uh,
1: mm-hmm.
3: evangelical, tradition conservative group, and like every denomination, there some parts of it are more conservative than other parts. So there's it's a, a variety, but. That's the, uh, that was the people I grew up with.
1: Hmm.
2: But it sounds like you're not there anymore, that things, things change for you along that path.
3: Right. Yeah. Let me, I'll I'll give you a little background. I, as I said, I spent those 16 years in the nomination administration and I had a, uh, a crash and burn. I had a, uh, well, I was, I tell the story. I was, Preparing to go to Washington D.C. with four other representatives from all the major denominations in the United States, and it was a long time ago—30 years ago. So I was, I was younger and arrogant. <laughs> I felt I was really important for this team, and uh, I wound up in the hospital and septic, and I was uh, dying. Oh, wow! And uh, it uh, was quite a shock. And the team went without me, and they were able to accomplish their tasks. So anyway. I realized that I needed to do some assessment of my life. One of the things I had to ask myself was, who in the world am I? Mm. Uh, Because I had lost myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had become a human doing. I lost my human being, even in in the ministry piece. And I realized a lot was dying in my life besides my body. Um, My wife's competitor was not another woman. It was the church. It was the denomination. So that's a tough Mm -hmm. taskmaster. Mm -hmm. And I realized my relationship with my wife was dying like a degree at a time, like the reverse of the frog in the kettle, but getting colder and Mm -hmm. nothing violent, nothing angry, just, just growing apart. And, um, I realized that my parents knew how to work. They didn't have a lot of uh, relationship skills. And so I inherited that. And then I had to ask myself, what do I really want to have at the end of things thing I call life? Because I was, I was working as if, and if you'd asked me other questions, I would have told you the right answers. I want to have people. I want to be loving people and all that stuff. Right, right. But I was living as if maybe when I retired, they would uh, make a glass case around my desk and make a shrine out of it, mm-hmm. <laughs> which obviously wasn't going to happen. And yeah. <laughs> never heard anybody say, if I could have one more week in the office, my life would be complete if I could just die with one more week in the office. Mm. And so I had to ask myself, what do I really want to have? And I knew my wife couldn't do it for me. And even at that point, I realized God can't do this for me. And I don't know how to do this, uh-huh. which was the toughest question was, am I willing to take the risk of doing what I have no idea how to do?
1: Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it's uh, scary. That, I mean, that it's, led me, at, that led me from,
3: from the dom- denomination to a large church where I started a um, – I started small groups, mm-hmm. and I started a 12-step recovery group. Okay. Uh, okay. The church had sent me around the country to various large churches and, uh, to find out about their small group programs. And I f- saw that they had small groups for Bible study and fellowship, and then they had recovery groups. Mm-hmm. And I asked, how do these two kinds of groups relate to each other? And they said, well, it's obvious. You I mean, when you have small groups in the church, Sometimes some of the most dysfunctional people in the church come to the groups and the groups are not prepared to handle them. Right. And either they will kill the group or the group will shun them. Mm-hmm. And so the recovery group was a way to say, maybe this group better for you. I had some two, I uh, two daring people come out of the woodwork who had 12 step experience. And we started a 12 step recovery group wound up with 125 people. On a Thursday wow. night. Wow. Thursday night because nobody else was in church on Thursday night because you don't mm-hmm. come to a 12-step group because life is good.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: In fact, I had people who would come to the parking lot and just to see who went in and out before they would actually come in
1: because
3: mm. it, was, it was shameful. Yeah. Out of that, I was doing my own recovery work, and people would call me and say, can I come and talk to you? I, I'm still struggling. And they would come in, and I would say, sure. And I would listen to them. And these were church people. And they would often use the word guilt. And I was reading a lot of codependency literature and recovery literature, and it made me more sensitive to the word shame, because that mm-hmm. word is everywhere in that literature. Right. And they would say things like, I feel so guilty that I didn't meet my parents' expectations. And when I asked him what the expectations were, I thought, well, no wonder you didn't, because they're impossible. Uh-huh. But they were put on that person. And uh, I felt I feel so guilty that I didn't know what I didn't know before it happened, but I don't know how I would know it, but somehow I feel guilty that I didn't know it.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And then sometimes it was, I feel guilty that I didn't stop my perpetrator who abused me. Uh-huh. And I realized they were using the word guilt but they were talking about things that had happened to them, not right. things they had done. Now they had complications from those things,
1: mm-hmm. but
3: the core issue was they were they were calling it guilt when it was really shame. And I a guy left my office one day, and I thought, how in the world do I help them deal with shame? Mm-hmm. And that led me to a little computer word search. Back in those days, most of those Bible study word search programs were pretty much. Programmed by fundamentalists because King James mm-hmm. version was always the default version. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I read that growing up, but I wasn't reading it those days, but I thought, well, let's try, let's try it. So I typed in the word guilt. I was shocked. There are only 33 to 35, vari- uh, very little variation, instances in the word guilt in the old and new Testament combined. I put in the words shame and disgrace, and it was 192 hits. Uh And that shocked me because my pastors could find it twice every Sunday,
1: Mm -hmm.
3: the word guilt. Guilt, yeah. And if you didn't have it before you got in there, they're going to give it to you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because when your product is forgiveness, it implies that you need guilt to receive forgiveness. Mm, Right. I'd never heard a sermon about shame. In all my theology training, before I went to my d program, I never heard anything about shame. It was a not issue.
2: So two things. Um, one, really quickly, can we break down the differences between guilt and shame really quickly for some of our listeners?
3: Sure. The way I use that those terms, uh, guilt is about doing something wrong, and it's external to me. So I, I lie to you. I cheat you. I... I offend you some way, but it's it's external. I did that. Mm-hmm. Shame is more an internal feeling of I did that. Mm-hmm. It's not that I just did wrong. I am wrong for doing mm-hmm. it.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So it's internal versus external. And they're related. If I've done something wrong and I have some shame about doing it, having done it, I'm probably motivated to make amends or apologize or make restitution, ask for forgiveness. If I have done something wrong and I have no shame about doing it wrong, I'm probably going to minimize it, justify it and blow it off. Mm-hmm. I always tease people about uh, asking them, did you, have you been a speeder recently? Have you looked down and seen you're exceeding the speed limit? And almost everybody has. And then The question was, did you feel so shameful that you had to find a police officer to turn yourself in to get this off your chest? Well, nobody does that.
1: Right.
3: So we can have guilt with shame and guilt without shame. And we can have shame even after we have dealt with the guilt of doing something wrong. We can Mm -hmm. still carry the deep feeling of, I am wrong for having done it. I am Mm -hmm. defective for having done it. I'm inadequate for having done it. I'm soiled for having done it. I've mm-hmm.
2: often viewed shame kind of as an elusive ghost. It's like trying to chase your shadow.
3: Shame is very paradoxical. Uh, guilt is kind of linear. There's guilt and guiltless, and that and the bridge is forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Shame is paradoxical in that if I if I think you have a lot of shame, I may want to encourage you. But if you have a lot of shame, my encouragement may in fact boomerang because the shame will say, well, yeah, but he doesn't really know who you are, if he really knew who you are. And so I get a pushback. Mm-hmm. right? And then I do it some more, and I get a pushback. And pretty soon I give up, and then the shame says, well, see, I told you. It's also mm-hmm. paradoxical in that if you take shame on a, on a continuum from one end to the other, one extreme might be um, a sense of shamelessness. So a person who has no shame, that's not good like guiltless. If you have somebody who's shameless, they're probably uh, narcissistic at least, and sociopathic probably. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing is that often when we feel the most shameful, we act the most shameless. We are, we can be ashamed of being ashamed. Which is mm-hmm. yes, we put can. the mask on of I don't care. On the other mm-hmm. extreme uh, well, in the middle, in the middle, if you take a continue, in the middle, there's a healthy sense of shame. A healthy sense of shame allows me to be imperfect and not be devastated by my imperfections. That's a fine line though. A healthy sense of shame allows me to be to have a healthy spirituality because mm-hmm. I don't need to be perfect enough. I can be loved in my imperfections. The kind of shame on the other extreme is an internal shame, internalized, where we've internalized it, where we have now owned it, and it becomes the lens and the filter through which we experience life. And we live at risk of more shame. Hmm. So It's it's like John Bradshaw's term was toxic shame. Hmm. We've identified with it, and we don't want any more of it. And we begin to figure out how unconsciously how to defend ourselves, which complicates our life.
0: As you know, I'm writing about a uh, shadow right now. Uh, how how much would you connect um, Carl Jung and the shadow and that, that thought process to internalized shame? I, I, Are we talking about the same thing? There? I think
3: we're talking about similar things. Same thing, maybe too strong, but what I am most embarrassed in myself about and don't want to deal with, I will repress it. And it will come out in shadows. It will come out all projected in other people. I think the other term to connect here is trauma. When we have had significant trauma that has been where we've been made to feel powerless or we've made to to feel inadequate or humiliated deeply, uh, we can repress that. uh, but it's a, it's a shame event. It's a, it's a traumatic shame event. Hmm. term I'm using today is uh, what happens in trauma is we have an emotional stoppage. Uh, Our bodies, something happens that our body is not anticipating, Uh and suddenly we have Hmm. a stoppage. Hmm. If at that point adequate resources are there available for us to remediate that, to give us grace and love us, then the stoppage moves forward. It's like um, when you see a child at a playground and uh, they fall and hurt themselves, they bruise their knee or whatever, and they come running to mom and dad. If mom and dad attended that and take care of it, then they run back out and play. If mm-hmm. they run to mom and dad and get get over it, boy, you know, get up, you know, what, what are you mm-hmm. crying about? You don't even cry it's about something. Yeah. Suck it up. Yeah. Then they may go out and play, but they will go out and play real cautiously because mm-hmm. the stoppage is still there. Hmm. And that stoppage can stay there a long time. Mm -hmm. One of the ways I illustrate it, I'm sure you've all seen this, um, a group of people are together that are normally having an easy conversation, and then something happens, and all of a sudden somebody is throwing a temper tantrum like their little kid. Mm -hmm. Clear out of context. Mm -hmm. I would suggest to you that is an indication of a past stoppage where they're using the same coping skill they had at the time of the stoppage. Hmm. And after it's over, they're humiliated uh-huh. and then often beat themselves up for having done it, which just uh-huh. reinforces the shame and deepens the uh-huh. shame.
2: Well, it becomes a vicious cycle. It does. Hmm. I want to I go back really quickly because we were talking about your experience in church and that you noticed that they always talked about guilt Never about shame, right? Why do you think that is?
3: Well, I think it's uh, it was transparent. Um, it's like um, what I what I what, the phrase I ran into when people would almost talk about shame, they would call it false guilt. It's like you come into my office and uh, you've prayed a prayer of forgiveness and you said, "Yeah, I've apologized to my wife or my kids or my what are my neighbor." I've done all those things, and, and it's like, okay, then you, you great, but you still feel that heaviness, that's that still feeling like that. it's like, well, okay, well, the problem is that you've obviously had forgiveness, and so you're still dealing with it, so it must be false guilt, hmm. but we're still using the paradigm of guilt, yeah yeah,' and it doesn't so, go away and, and, well, and so now I'm blaming the victim
1: right. Right. I'm blaming exactly. you
3: for your own problem. so here's forty five verses to go memorize. <laughs> Get this in your head, and, do
0: something yeah. Yeah, do something
3: I think the word I think the issue of guilt is that Western theology totally ignores shame. if you've been around education much you 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 hear about uh Eastern cultures are shame based cultures, Western cultures are guilt cultures. we've been given a guilt paradigm through Augustine and <laughs> that uh-huh. whole thread mm-hmm. thread of theology. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I saw early on that we are shame culture too. We just hide it, call it
0: Mm -hmm. guilt. Yeah. Make it worse. Make it worse.
3: In fact, in the church world, we often substitute the word pride for shame. Illustration. I heard a uh, call-in radio program for the counselor, live program, which I thought was really dangerous. But uh, he Mm -hmm. got a call from a guy who said, um, I want to know how to um, reconcile with my wife. It was a second marriage. And the counselor says, well, what happened? And he said, well, I, I had an altercation with her 16-year-old son at Thanksgiving. He was out of control, and I, I wound up hitting him. So the counselor said, well, um, have you apologized to your stepson? Hmm. And alongside, He says, well, no. And the counselor said, well, why haven't you apologized? Long silence, and he said, Well, I guess I'm just too proud. In reality, he's (laughs) too ashamed.
1: Yeah, right. But
3: it seems nicer to say the word pride than it is.
2: Well, one, I mean, pride everyone has, and it's something that's a sin, and it's okay. Yeah, okay, I'm I'm prideful. Whereas if we're talking about shame, that's fessing up to saying there's something wrong with me, and no one really wants to ever do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
3: well, we've also read the New Testament and the Old Testament incorrectly. We've read them with Western eyes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did not realize, I was never trained in in seminary, to realize that the Hebrew culture and the Middle Eastern culture are shame-based cultures. And every encounter in that situation, every encounter of what you see in the New Testament, with Jesus, every encounter with the Pharisees or somebody was a, a, call it an agonistic encounter. That is, there was a winner or loser. Who's going to save face? Who's going to gain face? Hmm. And so the presence of shame is much more prominent in Scripture than just where the word appears. For example, the prodigal son story is a shame story.
2: Right, 100% it is.
3: Where does it mention? Hmm. And I would suggest to you that the primary focus of the healing stories of Jesus are primarily shame and grace stories Rather than simply being about the healing, I'm not denying the healing, but uh, for example, um, there's a story where Jesus and his disciples encounter a a funeral procession of a widow whose only son is dead. Mm-hmm. Now, in that culture, that widow is, is trash, she's worthless, she has no mm-hmm. husband, and she had now her oldest, her only son is dead. When Jesus restored, that boy to life, he restored her to worth and dignity. Hmm. The details are important. Not, that doesn't deny the healing piece, but the issue is how do I get restored to worth and purpose? Unclean people were not were not considered germy. They didn't understand germs. They were, hmm. something was wrong with them. They had blood on the outside of their skin and, and they were outcasts. And those are the people Jesus hung around with.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: Uh The Pharisees seemed to believe in the contagion of disgrace, and Jesus believed in the contagion of grace. You had all these bad people who were unclean and outcast together, shame people, and he had parties.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, he provided wine at a party that had been going on for five days. Yeah, Have have you ever
3: been to a Jewish party?
2: Uh, I have not.
3: Well, they not. They're not synchronized. So let's let's read Deuteronomy one more time.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I I
0: have a question. So we we're kind of talking about in the church that that guilt, especially and shame, gets promoted. Um, we've put one guy up on the stage, and in our churches, it was a guy, literally a guy, mm-hmm. not a girl. Yeah. yeah. But they have that position. And they have that purpose of, of basically, I would, nowadays I call it the show because it's rehearsed and it's planned and it's, but in that time, um, I don't remember in 20 years as a pastor saying, I'm going to shame people. I'm going to make them feel guilt. No. But I did have a thing that I was required to do. A thing that I was required to sell, what I was selling, right, and to sell it, uh, it's just almost like a life insurance salesman. There, there had to be some fear, there had to be some need yeah. created before I could sell. Can you comment on that? How that kind of stuff plays in? I, I don't remember having malicious intent.
3: No, ever, no, I, I, I would but, never, I would never assume that a pastor would have malicious intent. Yeah. Um, well, let me give you a, an illustration that's, that's kind of on point. Maybe uh, some years ago, I was with a group of pastors in Oklahoma City, and we were talking about shame. and And, and obviously, I was trying to say to them, "I don't think you intend to shame anybody," mm-hmm. uh, but inadvertently, we can shame people by not recognizing shame's on the table.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And they were like, oh, "I don't get it." So I said, "Well, do you have a um, do you have a volunteer Sunday?" They all said, "Well, sure, we have a volunteer Sunday, and do you call the volunteers up front?" And yes, do you have prayer with them? Yeah, do you honor them? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I said, "I wonder who's in the pews. I wonder what they're thinking. They're sitting there, kind of naked, out there in the pews.
1: Mm
3: -hmm. Uh Do you think they're going to show up next year for Volunteer Sunday when you announce it? (laughs) I suspect maybe not, Mm -hmm. uh, because it's like I'm, I'm." Uh, put on the spot here or I feel like, well, now I got to better go volunteer. Otherwise I'll be sitting out there by myself next year, Mm -hmm. which is not the greatest motivation for,
0: for, 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 uh,
3: for serving. But I think when, when, well, here's a, a the illustration of my own life. I mean, I, years ago I had a car that I didn't have a lot of money. I was trying to fix it. And this was back before the computerization of cars. And I kept trying to do things. I changed the fuel filter. that didn't work. I changed something else that didn't work. I tried something else and I made it worse. I took it into the shop and and the mechanic said to me when he fixed it and I paid more than I wanted to pay, he said, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you, I don't know who's been working on your car, but I would not let them do that again (laughs) because I was fixing the wrong things. When we focus on guilt and we say, well, the problem you have is forgiveness, just ask God to forgive you, and we are transparent to shame, I can go through the motions of that, and I look around, and everybody else seems like they've got it together, and so I'm going to hang around here, and I'm going to pretend like I got it together, and maybe I'll Uh figure it out, Mm. but now I can't tell anybody and be vulnerable about my struggle, because then they'll know. Right. And I've been in some spiritual communities where it feels like everybody's pretending.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And if anybody gets really vulnerable and honest, everybody gets really awkward and silent. And let's get let's get back to studying the length of the arc. I mean, mm-hmm. let's get back to something important. Mm-hmm. Here.
1: Yeah.
2: Dr. Paul, just kind of letting you know, um, I am a counselor, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, but I'm also someone who came out as gay after... Mm-hmm. Uh, wanting, pledging a year, um, uh-huh. in ministry, um, to become uh-huh. a youth pastor and, and all of that. Um, so I deal with a lot of internalized shame that I truthfully, it's not being perpetuated by anybody but myself. Right. And that's where this gets interesting. It's, I mean, mm-hmm. there's a tradition by which I was raised that, you know, has, right. has set the thing, these things in motion. But at this point, it's, it's me
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> that, that's perpetuating it. Do you know that, like, is that, is that common or is it normally coming from an outside source?
3: Uh, well, it, I think it's it partially an outside source. I think yes. babies are born with an innate relationship skill. <laughs> you don't have to teach babies how to have a relationship.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Babies, uh, we have, we're doing childcare now for a young baby, uh, for, for a friend of ours. And watching, watching him begin to move an arm and then move the other arm and then try to coordinate it finally getting two hands together and grab something and and not move his feet at the same time. It's fascinating to watch because nobody's teaching him that. Mm. Uh Uh, And shame in my model is an innate affect. That is we are, we are born with the capacity to have shame. Just like we're born with the capacity to uh, be excited about something. You see little baby's eyes get fascinated. Mm-hmm. Or they track things, they get really interested. Uh, or they know how to be angry. Um, they know how to, uh, when they smell something that doesn't smell good, they'll, they'll wrinkle up their nose. Uh, when they taste something they don't like, they'll blah, blah. You don't have to teach them that. When you have a, a, a an infant, if they are interested in something, a rattle, color, and you suddenly take it away from them, sometimes they'll get angry. And sometimes they'll 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 turn their eyes down and they go right to shame. Hmm. We we're born with the innate affect of shame, the sensitivity to it. But then we live life and we find heart wounds. We are treated in ways that reinforce the shame, that create that create a story about the shame.
2: Mm-hmm. Hmm. When I would say even now, as I'm 30 years old and I've started to really look at wanting to address this, to seeing, uh-huh. hey, this is something that's affecting me on a daily basis. But what I find is that specifically in the church and, and many of the things at which I've attempted to approach this, it's all head knowledge. Yes. Like I it's like I'm talking in circles and I can never catch it right it's, it's like it, the shame has affected my emotions it's affected the essentially the core of who i am as a person but i have so much difficulty unpacking it or even explaining it to other people um yeah. it's like i can't access that part and right. i'm i it's very frustrating because it's you i mean yeah. i feel like i'm just chasing my tail
3: well i i i as i, so I Kind of alluded a little bit ago. Um, when I came back from my doctor ministry around, around shame, I, I I had a lot of information, and I would sit down with people. I worked for a counseling program, and I would sit down with pastors, particularly, and people, and I would um, help them connect dots between what had happened in their life and the mm-hmm. behaviors they were they were struggling with. Repeat, keep, keep repeating old behaviors, and um, they would begin to connect the heart wounds that they had, had that the stoppages that. That created that behavior that internalized it. And um, then they would get the aha, and I'd get the insight, and then they would come back a month later or a few weeks later, and it's like mm, nothing's changed, and nothing's changed, and nothing's changed. And I went through an experiential program uh, as a part of my organization's, uh, I was kind of a guinea pig for my organization. And I realized that we acquire shame. Not intellectually, but experientially. Community. And so some kind of yeah. experiential process is important for the healing of shame. Mm. A place where I can learn to be vulnerable.
1: Mm.
3: Let me relate it to something that you probably work with in your your work. Um, mm-hmm. the, the rules for dysfunctional families.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I'm sure you've heard these three rules. A lot of people oh, have yeah. and some haven't lots of rules that make a family dysfunctional, uh, but three core rules. One rule is don't talk about it. If you talk about something you're not supposed to talk about, you get that look that says, shut up. Mm -hmm. Or if you keep talking about it, you might get more than a look. Or you say, well, here's what I experience. Here's what I see. And somebody says, no, it's not that. It's something else. They mislabel it. So my favorite one is, No, that's not rage. That's righteous indignation. Hmm. Uh, It's probably rage. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But what it does, it begins to plant a doubt about your own perceptions. Do I really know what I'm talking about? Can I trust myself? Or do I need to borrow somebody else's opinion first? Second rule, don't feel what you feel unless I've told you it's a good feeling. How dare you feel that way after all we've done for you? Good mm. boys don't feel that way. Mm. Good Christians never feel that way. Yeah. So now I have gotten shamed for the feelings that I have. I've already learned I can't talk about it. So what we do is we tend to shut feelings down. It's too risky to have feelings. Third rule, don't trust anybody. If I trust, I'm going to be betraying a lot of families are like a movie set on the outside it looks like a wonderful place on the inside you know it's not like it looks like on the outside mm. but you're not supposed to let anybody know that because if they do you're going to you're a traitor and so yeah. we begin to lie to protect the family you know my my mother's motto was what would people think of us if they saw you doing that
1: mm. so uh-huh.
3: you're you're bad for wanting that yeah. Those three rules are perfectly des- designed to destroy real intimacy and authenticity. Mm-hmm. I can't talk about it. I can't let myself feel my feelings. I can't share them with anybody. They are de- they are shame based rules.
0: So why do we almost instinctively use those operating procedures?
2: Yeah, that's a great it's a great question.
0: Why great do question.
2: we?
3: Well, let's go back to the stoppage. At the time of the stoppage, we start developing defenses. And we keep Uh using the defenses as long as the stoppage is there. Hmm. Uh, James Finley says it this way, one of his uh, deals about trauma. He says, we begin to believe, our ego believes we are what's happened to us. We are what we've done wrong. And we are what we've done right. Hmm. Yeah. And the reality is we're more than any of that.
0: So our mm-hmm. urgency is this is going to be painful, right? Right. That's, this right. is going to hurt, and I don't want it to hurt again. Right. So I'm going to stop you. Yeah. Right?
3: Now, th- this gets a little strange language here, so bear with me. This is new language for me. When there's a stoppage, it's like there's a wounded part of me. Mm. And other people... Awarenesses, parts. I use the word parts, not 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 concrete parts, but other awarenesses, internal voices, come around us to protect us. I, I don't know if you've ever had this conversation, but I suspect most people do. It's like, uh, well, part of me thinks the answer to this question is this. Another part of me thinks the answer to this question is that that's a really stupid answer. And another mm-hmm. part of me says, "Well, don't ask anybody because then they'll, you don't know anything." And another right. part of me says, "Let's get a piece of pie. it'll make you feel better." Mm-hmm. So yeah. we already had this part kind of conversation going on, but we are totally out of touch with them.
1: Mm.
3: The parts that are defending us believe they are us, mm. and are terrified for us. And let me say this: sometimes they're terrified about us because we have a tendency to wound ourselves. Mm. So if I, if I act out in a way out of my woundedness, then I may criticize myself that that was stupid and what's wrong with me and that, that's, that's crazy. Nobody else does this kind of stuff. I sure can't let anybody know that. So we are attacking the wounded part of ourselves which deepens the internalization of it.
0: Mm. What we should have is compassion
3: for it, right? When we can when we can come back to our wounded places with self compassion and humility, we can become adequate resources for ourselves. Mm. Mm. I, I think that's huge.
2: Can you unpack that a little bit
3: more?
0: Yeah, because I think that's big. It is big. Because that's good. That's
2: yeah. That's a lot.
3: I've been working now a couple of years on a methodology that I've been trying to do this myself as well as bring it to other people. The the generic name for this model is focusing. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: And the idea is, can I begin to have an internal relationship with my own emotions? Mm -hmm. Can I begin to have an awareness of what's going on inside me Rather than have the emotion over-identify with me as if it is me that's a that's a longer cut
2: that's it's so hard that's so hard to do because well, honest
3: yes, that's why I've been working on it when years. there's
2: <laughs> when there's shame when, with shame, I mean, and my parents can testify to this when there's a lot of shame involved, for example, I will respond to situations in ways that are vastly. I don't want to say inappropriate, but but not fitting to the situation, and, and not, right? am not carrying...
3: your truest self, perhaps.
2: Correct. I respond to a situation as if it's something that happened. I'm you know I'm responding to something different than what's mm-hmm. currently happening.
3: Let me let me challenge the word you're using because words are important. Okay. You're not just responding; you're reacting. Correct. A response, yes. I would call that a thoughtful um, process of how do I choose, I'm choosing to respond versus I'm just reacting hmm. defensively.
2: I often don't even know that that's happening. So being able to identify hmm. your emotions I f- is around yes. shame is, is very, it's yeah. not easy. Hmm. Um I, I would say a lot of people that have experienced um, traumatic things in their lives have place where being able to identify how they actually feel is a mm-hmm. challenge.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Is it because we're over spiritualizing sometimes, or spiritually bypassing, that we don't we don't talk about the body and how we store things in our body and how um, all of that works? I know the focusing sessions I've been through. We're intensely focused on where do you feel that? Yes. Where is it at? Where is it coming? We from?
3: we we've cut the Western theology. We've kind of cut spirituality out of our body. It's a, it's a it's a mental logical mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. Our bodies have great wisdom. Mm-hmm. Context for Carl's question. We've only understood the unconscious for about a hundred years. That's that's the limit of our knowledge. Hmm. We've had more than two thousand years of trying to deal with it.
0: Bad <laughs> theology. But,
3: but we didn't have any <laughs> way to deal with it except kind of get over it and get busy and work harder hmm. and hmm. And, and, I, and I think that I think the modern disconnect with nature. I mean, for thousands of years we, we were ground based and nature based and and I, I think we're mm-hmm. uh, in modern culture we're. we're we're out of touch with that, so I think there's mm-hmm. some with that.
0: Yeah,
3: spirituality. Yeah, a spirituality that's not embodied is not spirituality. Spirituality mm-hmm. isn't embodied. I would dare say, uh, if I asked you guys, if you go back to remember the last time you felt what you would say was a very spiritual encounter, it it you didn't experience it as logical.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: you got caught up in the moment of it. You kind of lost yourself in it. And it was a sense of joy That's in your thing. body. And as you became aware of it and you, you didn't want to lose it, but, <laughs> yeah. but it wasn't a logical thing. Right. Whether it was at the ocean or whether it was the mountains, you weren't measuring the distances and what's the temperature.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, you, felt you, it.
3: Were just, you were just, it felt right as a felt sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Seth, are you open to uh, a couple of suggestions about this issue of how do we... Absolutely. So... Of course. You're doing this podcast this morning, and uh, we never met before, and I don't know how you're feeling, but Mm -hmm. how would you... uh, What's a feeling that you would say you're aware of right now as you started this podcast? What word would you come up with?
2: Uh, Nervousness. Anxiousness.
3: So I'm feeling nervous. Would that be the right state? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm feeling anxious.
1: Correct. Okay. Mm-hmm.
3: So that form of statement implies that that feeling of nervousness is at least as big as you are or bigger. Mm-hmm. I am nervous. Correct? Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: I mean, using language, yeah, yes.
3: That's, that's the logic of it. Based
2: on the language, yes.
3: So, right. um can, are you in touch with where that, how that nervousness manifests itself in your body? Is it in your chest, your stomach, your heart? or Stomach. stomach. Okay. So I'm going to invite you to shift your language a bit. I'm going mm-hmm. to invite you to say to yourself or out loud, see how it feels. Something in me feels nervous. Mm-hmm.
2: Something in me feels nervous.
3: How does that feel different?
2: it's it's putting distance between me and that emo- and that emotion it's making it something that is manageable not something that's managing me
1: mm.
3: okay how about how about let's shift it and and let's mm. uh, instead of managing it how about i'm sensing something in me is nervous and i I'm, I'm going to not see it as bad but i'm going to be with it it's just in there and just going to observe it. Observe, yeah. So I'm going to ask you to mm-hmm. add the phrase: "I am sensing mm-hmm. something in me feels nervous." Mm-hmm.
1: Right.
3: I am yeah.
2: sensing something in me that is mm-hmm. nervous.
3: So suddenly, it's smaller than you.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Words have words power. have power. And mm-hmm. if it's nervous, is it worried about something? Might it be worried about something? Yes. Okay. All right. And so is it a bad thing to have something worried for you?
2: Not always.
3: Yeah. <laughs> uh, let, let me let me take another direction. Do you ever have an inner critic show up?
2: Always. Hmm. If. <laughs> I do.
0: If. I do. When.
2: Which
1: he's right
3: beside <laughs> yeah. me. What are you talking about?
1: <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> when do I not?
3: I, yeah, I have a, the I have a question. friend I, I don't know if I can use this word on your podcast. you may even the of course this. you can <laughs> I have a La- friend this who, is language free <laughs> I have a friend who calls it her shitty committee who shows up <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: never heard so, that,
2: but that's good yeah.
3: so Seth, yes. when you were a teenager, did you ever want to do something and your parents said, no, you cannot do that. That's stupid. Of course. And did you say something like, Well, you don't trust me, and you don't think I'm, I'm, I'm mature and uh, you know, like
2: they didn't understand.
3: Right. They didn't understand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You perceive them as a critic. Correct? They were critical of you. Y-
2: yes. Okay. I mean, as a teenager, yes. Yes. They they yes. were.
3: But their whole motivation was really to protect you.
2: Correct. They were acting out of love, but I couldn't see it at the time.
3: So what if that inner critic, because if we name, if we name it inner critic, we want to get rid of it, we're under attack. That's the word in the church world, I'm mm. under attack. Yeah. What if that inner critic is a part of you that's worried for you, it wants to protect you?
2: Mm. It's overcautious. <laughs>
3: it may be uh, but sometimes yeah so- i
2: mean if we can look at it differently it's not so adversarial it's yeah. not so yeah um oppositional
3: yeah, yeah.
0: and it's it's still not, it may not be wise right
3: yeah it still may it still may be and it, may, it still may be based on some logic that's not wise flawed logic it doesn't yeah. have to be right right but again if it's if it's a part of me and i can be with it Hmm. I can sense what it's worried about, hmm. and I can have I can have compassion for it being worried, and I can bring some self compassion because otherwise we wind up being critical.
1: Yeah.
0: So, what if if that's kind of Carl Jung's stuff of getting between the critic and the child? What are we bit doing of, in there? That's what I it, want to it's know. It's a
3: little bit of Carl Jung stuff, but it's more about this uh, focusing piece. Hmm. When, when we do not, when we do not pay attention to the, to the our body's messages, our body's messages will yell louder and louder. Mm-hmm. And eventually, if we don't pay attention to them, they will show up as physical symptoms. Our body has wisdom that we are not in touch with. Hmm. So let me give you a little theology piece about this. Please
2: do. Please do.
3: I don't know the number of times that Paul says we are in Christ, but a lot of them.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: And Christ in us, the hope of glory. Those are very embodied terminologies, Christ in us, in Christ. Mm. He says, we have the mind of Christ. Now, the mind of Christ doesn't necessarily mean the logic of Christ, but the awareness that Christ had. Mm. And John says, um, we're like a vine and branches. That's a very integrated and in, intimate experience.
1: Yeah. If it's At one alive, part, yeah.
3: Yeah, at one point, the writer of John puts these words in Jesus' mouth. He says, Jesus says, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, and we're in you. Mm. And we're sending an advocate that will teach you all that you need to know. Mm. And we hear that logically. But what if when these negative feelings come up that we call negative, that would tempt us to react? are really Father, Son, and Spirit bringing up our awareness of brokenness within us hmm. to bring us to attention to the possibility of healing it. Hmm. Paul has this strange phrase. He says, I want to fill up the woundedness, the brokenness, the sufferings of Christ. What in the world does that mean? Hmm. Oh. Does he want to go out and be masochistic and just be beat up? I don't think so. Hmm. I think he was moving at a deep, I think Paul is a mystic, for example. I think Paul is a mystic.
1: Hmm.
3: I think Paul was moving to a place of saying, I want to be able to be non-reactive in all my circumstances.
2: Hmm. I have lots of thoughts on Paul that I'll, I'll hold.
3: Oh yeah. Mm. Well, of course about 3 fourths what was attributed exactly. to all called in right. Exactly. Write, so. <laughs> yeah. When we talk
2: about healing because you've mentioned that a couple times mm-hmm. and I'm I'm curious yep. what exactly that means. Um as a counselor in the field, you know, we, we talk a lot about coping strategies, okay. things that you can do to manage things to become more livable right. um, or more manageable or more ideal. But when we talk about healing, right, um, healing, I think of a cure, right? Like if you get healed, right, you were sick and now you're not. So when we talk about healing around shame, what, unpack that, what does that look like?
3: Well, I, I think there's a continuum. I think there is a, in, there's an important phase of, of uh, coping skills and grounding emotional, uh, um, emotional outbursts or uh, mm-hmm. over, overloads. It's a really important piece because if you can't get past that, you, you're right. just stuck. So grounding that is really important. I think there's a distinction between cure and okay. healing. Cure would be it's not there at all, it's gone. Healing may mean living with the awareness of it, but it not dominating my life choices. So for example, in a grieving situation, a a significant loss, My self-in-presence, the the I am sensing part, can can genuinely feel grief and sadness. If, however, it becomes a part of me that sucks me into it, that dominates me, if here's the metaphor, my grief and sadness is driving the car and I'm in the back seat, then I'm in trouble. If it's a passenger along with me, that's fine. It can be mm-hmm. there.
1: Yeah.
3: I don't have to dishonor myself. I don't have to get over it quick, which is a which is a shaming mm-hmm. experience, by the way. Uh, if I can be with it without it being me. In in, in doing contemplative work with people, my, my little line is: it's important to do contemplative processing because I want to be with my feelings rather than my feelings having me. Mm -hmm. I want to have them, but I don't want them to have me. You want to be in control. Because if they they have me, they're at a distance, and I can choose to respond rather than simply react. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, healing probably looks, it, it may be a word that maybe, I mean, some things we never get over, but we get past the stoppage. I'll, I'll give you a story. This is, I've been doing some work on this myself, I've, and I've been doing this work now thirty years. I mean, so long time. I've been doing breakthrough seminar for twenty one years. I had about five thousand people go through it, and so wow, I have mm-hmm. a little experience with it. Um, when I was seven years old, um, when I was born, my, my mother and father were forty and fifty. I had several teenage brothers and sisters, and I had a sister who was really my surrogate mother. She was seventeen when I was born. And she made life fun for me. My mother was 40 when I was born and she was tired. And at uh, at seven years old, she died quite suddenly. At the time, looking back at it, I sensed at that time my mother could not handle my grief. And so I was a little man. I stuffed it all. I put the little bow tie on and sat there in the funeral. And all the time, I'm praying for my my sister to be resurrected. <laughs> you know, what well, what a wonderful thing to prove, prove to everybody how God does, and, and what it didn't. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was spiritualized. Well, God needed her more than we did.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And I, from that, I um, I felt alone. I remember saying to myself at seven years old, "I've got to do this on my own." My mom and dad. They really don't know what they're doing. If it's going to work, I've got to do it. I've got to make it happen. It's all up to me. And I internalized mm-hmm. that. And that was a stoppage. Now, that has played itself out in various ways. Always trying to be enough. Always trying to know more. Always trying to you know be on top of everything. You kind of imagine that. Work addiction. That finally caught up with me. And uh, this summer, as I went back and and did some work with that, and I got back to that little boy, and I got him, and he stood up on a chair and turned around to all those church people and said, bullshit.
0: Hmm. (laughs) That was huge. That was huge. Right?
1: Yeah.
3: It was like, okay, it isn't all up to me. I don't have to do all Uh Mm of this. But I became adequate resources for myself by doing that work. My spirituality was not adequate resources. So, unconsciously, if we had this stoppage, it, unconsciously, we try to find resources in other people, in roles, in relationships, in work, and none of them can be adequate resources as long as we are not willing to come back and be compassionately present with ourselves.
2: Hmm. That's so yeah. important. That's yeah. so, yeah. so crucial.
0: You said it's not in control of you, but you're also not necessarily controlling it. Yeah,
3: right.
1: You're you're coexisting.
3: That experience is still there. I mean, it it, it doesn't go away. It's not magically fixed.
1: Mm
3: -hmm. We we believe that change comes externally by some kind of logic or force. My experience is that change happens when I can be with the wounded parts of myself with self-compassion. It happens inside out, not mm-hmm. outside in. Yeah. And, and, and in the church world, we try to do the opposite. We believe performance is the important thing. I can mm-hmm. just perform. About now. the works. I can, you know, we would never say salvation by works. We just do it. You know.
1: Hmm.
3: But it can, we can never get there. Yeah. But then I can't tell right. you I didn't get there. Because then you'll know I didn't get there. And I'm embarrassed. And so maybe I'll leave. Hmm. So I've been developing this last couple of years, uh, in addition to the Breakthrough Seminar, uh, a track of helping people develop the skills of what's called focusing. That is having an inner relationship with yourself Mm. and finding a path toward awareness of your own brokenness. Mm -hmm. The parts of us that are most broken are the parts that we project onto other people as wrong. Hmm. And the parts that are most broken in us are the parts that need the most love by us. Hmm. But who teaches us how to do that? Yeah. I had a, a, lot, I had a conversation with my pastor recently. She's a wonderful pastor. Uh, and she had a great sermon on forgiveness. It was a really powerful sermon on forgiveness. And uh, after it was over a couple of days later, I talked to her and I said, Now, let me ask this question because it's a pretty good sized church. I said, if you had a hundred people call up Monday and say, "Okay, I, I want to move toward forgiveness," how do I do that? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, right. When we, when we right. set the when exactly. we set
3: the table and say, "This is where this is where you should be," should be, this is mm-hmm. where you are. Shaming word, but yeah, shaming word. The should piece is. But we don't have a path to help them get there. Mm-hmm. We're doing people a disservice. Right. And that path is not logical. That path is not simply memorize more verses. That path is how do I get in touch with the place of unforgiveness in me? hmm And become present with it in a self-compassionate way with humility.
0: Do you do you find that? Uh, as you know, some, you and I have some similar friends that, that do focusing mm-hmm. um, and have uh, some of them are the sisters.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then some of, a lot of them are female yeah. for some reason. I don't know why, Yeah, but they can, they have uh, interacted with me and you've interacted with me and, and helped me in those kind of ways to, to focus. Is there, is there a, a time, I think it is, where you began to be able to do that for yourself?
3: Well, yes, I think, I think the goal the goal is not to become dependent on somebody to do that. Right. The goal is to learn a methodology where you can begin to do it yourself. Right Where you can begin to become aware of what's going on inside, be present with it with compassion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can sense what it is worried about. And mm-hmm. sense what it wants.
1: Yeah. Sense yeah.
3: maybe the parts of us that are, are, what call it action blocks, where we we want to do something but we're stuck.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Something in us wants to do it, and something in us says, "No, don't do that. That's stupid." And we have that internal mm-hmm. place, but uh, becoming aware of that, and so, um, as a part of being on this podcast, I have a. I have an e-course that I offer without cost, uh, and it is mm-hmm. five um, PDF files, and uh, each of those introduces some language shifts practice. And at the end of the mm-hmm. e-course, if somebody wants a one-hour focusing session, I'm doing that for, for just free. No, no cost after that. Want more than that, we we a coaching thing.
2: Where do they Where do they go to find that? If they
3: would email me at drpaul at heartconnection.org and heartconnection is spelled funny h e a r t c o n n e x i o n .org dr Paul, mm-hmm. heartconnection yeah. carl carl just mentioned the word sh- the shame around the word should i i, I tease about it but should always indicates shame is lurking
1: mm-hmm.
3: in fact i, I tell people mm-hmm. to make a make a little tent sign to put on their desk and write the same thing on both sides and the words are "don't shoot on me."
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, right.
3: Should. Should is like should is like a should is like a bungee cord word that takes me back to a place of victimization in the past.
1: Hmm. Uh, it shouldn't yeah. have
3: happened, or it should have happened. Mm-hmm. As long as that should is there, it's like a bungee cord. I can try to pull away from it, but it jerks me back. It jerks me back.
0: Yeah,
3: And the word should about future events sets me up for a mini M-I-N-I trauma. When I say, well, Carl shouldn't do that, and he does it like a slap in the face.
1: Hmm.
3: When I say, well, my wife should do something and she doesn't do it, it's like a slap in the face. But I am the one creating that.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So here's a, here's a really important principle. I'll say it twice. <laughs> Circumstances do not create reactions. Circumstances reveal what's in us to react. Mhm.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Circumstances do not create reactions. Circumstances reveal what's in us to react.
0: Mhm. That's good. Yeah. It's so true.
3: But we like but we like to blame people.
1: Mhm. Yeah.
3: We, we like we like yeah. to so what if you hadn't done that I wouldn't have acted that way it's your fault. No.
0: Yeah. Who that's part of that's part of my stuff I'm writing right now. So it's pretty raw. I, I I like Dr. Paul I like that what what you're thinking about now with this this making friends companions my friend Kathy who did a group spiritual direction horse and brought people together and she wanted to call it contemplative companions it's really really central that, that i've got a companion up with myself and it sounds weird to me to say that but but i'm going to make friends with those parts of me right. that aren't functioning
3: yeah as, yeah, a, as they a, could it's an internal awareness and an inner relationship with myself. And at the same time, it's important to have that soul friend with whom we are vulnerable externally.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
3: I mean, but that it's like, uh, uh, so something in me feels angry right now. Okay. Can I be with that with some self-compassion?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Just like I would be with, uh, if I went to coffee with Carl and, and he brought a friend along,
1: mm-hmm.
3: I might say hi.
1: Right.
3: I have no idea what he wants or how he feels, but my hi, how are you? And yeah. can I can I can I sense? Sometimes, sometimes we sense people's moods. It's like we may want to see mm-hmm. somebody and
2: it can impact. Yeah,
3: yeah. We're we we sense their moods, and it's like we want to tell them a joke. We look on their face and say, Oh no, they're not ready for a joke.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: We can have an inner awareness of what, is, what, are, what parts of us are communicating to us. Hmm. Call it intuition. Right. Yeah. But if we don't have a relationship with it, it's going to get louder and louder, or it's going to bury itself and come out sideways and pass aggressive hmm. or our shadows.
0: So you have a, a sort of a formula. We don't have time to do it. But for healing to occur and obviously you clarify this, but for healing to occur, we need eyes of grace. We need to be seen with eyes of grace. We need a healing touch, healing appropriate touch, and we need to be encouraged to risk. So that's yeah, I, I, that's not just yeah. external people. That's, that's all, also internal as well,
3: Yeah, right? Yeah, Yeah, the healing stories of Jesus offer a, a great model for, for healing. In those stories... Jesus looks at people with eyes of compassion
1: mm-hmm.
3: and he sees mm-hmm. them in, in all their vulnerability. Right. And he doesn't shame them. Right. He accepts them. Right. And we can find safe places. Not every place is safe. We can find safe places to be vulnerable mm-hmm. and we are accepted. Nobody dies. I don't die. You don't die. Nobody mm-hmm. runs away.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: A little piece of shame dies.
1: Right.
3: When we can find people right. who can touch us, the touch can be very inappropriate, mm-hmm. but touch, appropriate touch, humanizes us. It t- changes us. Me-
2: when done effectively.
3: Yeah, when done right. It it, it it says you're not alone. You're not isolated. You're not you're not terminally unique. hmm
1: And
3: and mm-hmm. you're not you're not so dirty I can't not teach. unclean. Yeah, yeah. Not unclean.
0: Yeah.
3: And then when we can. Be with people, and they can encourage us to take a risk and celebrate whatever little step we take.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Because shame says, "Don't take a risk. Don't try. Mm-hmm. You'll be laughed at."
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And when when nobody dies, and I don't die, shame dies.
0: Mm-hmm. So good,
2: Dr. Paul. I just want to say thank you so much. This been so educational um, and informative, and I really feel like we've laid out real tools Mm -hmm. and concepts that can help people and i want to thank you so much for coming on today carl thank you for joining the conversation and getting this connection with dr paul which let's, let's give a shout out for everyone here on this call because both of you um are doing things that that are making an impact and are really helping people so carl um, you recently came out with a book and you're also writing another one, um, which I know you've been on Fade to Gray to talk about that. Um, but do you mind just shouting out your book um, in case people wanted to find you? Yeah,
0: the book is called Apparent Faith. It's a play on words. It's the way I went through what I would call my deconstruction. But when I started questioning my beliefs about God, I applied the lens not only of looking through the lens of Christ to understand God, but also my experience as a parent uh, and so it became apparent to me after uh-huh. looking through the lens of my my parenthood my fatherhood that some of my beliefs had been um, in need of repair i guess <laughs> and so it talks about that in in that there's a there's a story about the tea shop about a a guy that um, a buddhist i think i think he's a buddhist the subject never came out but we had the experience together that taught me a whole bunch of things. And in the first book, I said, I need to think about those a little bit. And then I did. And that's the second book that's hopefully coming out early summer. And and I, I just write all the time because it helps me find out what I think.
2: Well, I think that writing in and of itself is a coping strategy. It helps, it's helpful for me. It, it is a coping strategy. Yeah. And it's very helpful for a lot of people and I, I think it's awesome. So everyone feel free to check out that book. And then Dr. Paul, I know you mentioned, you know, uh Dr. Paul at Heart Connection um to make sure that they can access those PDF files and things like that. But do you also host classes or I mean you also do I know you do calls with people. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: Uh we have Heart Connect you can go to Heartconnection.org and you'll you'll identify some some experiential seminars we do. It's awesome. course seminars it's called awesome. Breakthrough. And uh then you can uh, you can also contact me on Facebook at Dr. Paul Fitzgerald. Uh, also, heartconnection dot Heart is on Facebook, and you'll see the activities and events there. Uh, our, um, uh, you got time for me to tell yes. you about our, our well, name? We, yes, of course. Quickly, we had a we had a name that that we, we that somebody else had trademarked, mm-hmm. and uh, that's never a good thing. <laughs> and uh, so I was mind vegging in front of the PBS one evening trying to think of a new name and under a microscope, there were two heart cells and two different hearts under on a slide. And they were talking about the heart cells and they were beating. And I did not know you, a heart cell by itself would beat. And they were talking about the biology and then they, they moved these together and they finally they touched each other. And when they touched, they just started wildly vibrating both of them. And then they stopped and there was no voiceover. There was no sound like death. But then mm. they started beating with the same beat. Before they had different beats, then they had this wild thing. It's like there's there's the name, heart connection. I believe that's what all of us want in our spiritual lives. We want what the people most important to us. The problem is that that touching part is the vulnerability part. And shame mm. says, don't be vulnerable. Don't take a risk. Mm. And that robs us Good. of the real Good heart connection.
2: Well, everyone, please, please check out Dr. Paul's resources and information. I think that there is a lot to be gained from what you're putting out. And I just want to thank both of you. Pleasure. Thanks. Pleasure. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of Mental. I have found this conversation to be both insightful as well as informational. And if you have enjoyed this episode, I want to let you know uh, that you can join the community at patreon.com. Mental with Seth. For as little as $3 a month, I can plug you into a Facebook group as well as a Marco Polo group and help you join the conversation. Further, if you have additional questions or you feel like there's certain things you would like me to cover or maybe even share your own story, I want to encourage you to reach out to me at mental.ftg at gmail.com. Again, my email address where you can reach me is at mental.ftg at gmail.com.